Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, Rob. Yeah. Welcome back, buddy. Hey, yeah. I feel like it's did been you... a long time since I've uh, been on this podcast. Did, did you have a nice week off? My seat, I sat down. The seat was kind of warm. You know what I mean? Like, so, like yeah. someone else had been sitting in it. Listen, I want <laughs> you to know, buddy, that I strayed. But my whole thought was about coming back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a podcast cuck. <sighs> a little bit. So for anybody who doesn't know <laughs> what we're talking about, um, I had a I had a different co-host for the first time in the history of Booked. And when I say that, you know, there might be people who just started listening recently or whatever. In the eight plus year history of Booked, I did this podcast with somebody else, Dino Parenti, who, by the way, I would like to say, did a fantastic job reviewing the mister with me did you get a chance to listen to the episode i did it was very strange because um i still run all the back end uh, uh mm-hmm. business with the the podcast so livia sends me over a completed file so that i can upload the the episode and post it and i did all that work before i even listened to it so i didn't even quality control like anything could have <laughs> gone out and i and i had i didn't even so but yes i did uh, I had a chance to listen to it when I was, uh, I had a longer drive to go to one of, on my vacation, which we'll talk about, uh, a coffee shop I wanted to go to, and it's like half hour, 45 minutes away, so I knocked out that episode while I was driving. Just gripping the, like, my white knuckle, gripping the, the steering wheel, <laughs> listening to that fucking review. You realize how fragile your existence is, right? <laughs> <laughs> I felt so secure up until that moment. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I will tell you, we had a lot of fun. Um, we talked at length about E.L. James' newest novel, The Mister, um, which was a good time. Uh, Dino turned up and uh, and did a great job, which is awesome. I was really worried for a little bit there. I was like, yeah, this guy's not going to show up. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm gonna, yeah. what am I going to do? And then I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to barrel fucking through it, man, because if I read that book, I'm going to talk about that book, even if I have to do it by myself. Was Which would have been really, really weird, but no, um, it was it was a it was a good time. Uh, probably something we won't be doing terribly often, but I'm not going to say that it might not happen again. I mean, now I'm worried that you're just going to pick um, intentionally choose like the most awful books. <laughs> like you're going to be like, "Hey, Rob, Anne Rice has a new romance novel coming out." Yeah, and then you're gonna be like, "I don't want to do it," and I'll be like, "Uh." I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna go on social media and see if I can get someone to do this with me. We've already. I've seen rumblings. I'm not gonna name names, but I've seen rumblings of people talking about how maybe maybe they'll be next to to join the podcast. So well, I'm feeling after, a little insecure. Right after Dito said yes, I got like four different messages from people, and I'm like, it's too fucking late, man. Where were you when I when I asked so nicely? Yeah. You know, in the last episode. So, and you give Dino credit, those other people, you know, they're like, well, I didn't fucking hear a mask on the episode because I didn't listen. That's where Dino heard it. He heard it while listening on the episode. So it's true now, but I, you know what the logical next step is, um, we have two separate people join and do a review and both of us just kind of sit back and, you know, well, I don't, I don't want to talk about this on the podcast. We had this idea. It was, it was a couple of years ago. Do you remember? Nope. Okay, I'm not gonna. I don't want to name names, but there are there was two writers that we've both had on the podcast previously, and we thought it might be a good idea to just oh, host yeah. them talking about something. I, yeah. I remember now. Yeah, so we did kind of have an idea like that that I think we nixed for various reasons. But um, yeah, who knows? I just imagine us like sitting back, like like a nice drink in our hands, like we cheersing, and we're just like ha 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 laughing, like you know. Um, we'd finally made it because now we don't even have to like do any work for the podcast. Someone else is just doing it for us. <laughs> oh, in a perfect world, my friend, in a perfect world. Um, there's a Patreon level for that, and we are nowhere near it. Well, we'll I get there say. one day. We you know what? Now that you met, and I know, all right, so I'm going to say, first of all, we have a book to review this week, but there's just, it's been a while, so we have to get some stuff out of the way. But uh, I just want to say um, that we have been getting... Uh, a good amount of new Patreon uh, uh, supporters recently. Like 
there was an episode where we thank someone and then the next episode we thank two people and they just keep rolling in. So uh, I, I, I don't remember exactly who we've already thanked for joining us, but uh, there are three recent names that I thought I would just say within the last like two weeks that have joined us. Um, so I want to say thanks to Julie for joining up a couple weeks ago. Uh, we got Emily. Uh, Emily, who was a Patreon before and is coming back to us, she said, because of our review of Paul Nealon's Apathy and Other Small Victories. She liked it so much. She bought the book, loved the book, and had brought her back to our Patreon. So thanks, Emily, for joining us again. And also thanks for Brittany, uh, just this Sunday, joined us. So thanks, all of you, for supporting us and helping us make this podcast possible. Thank you so much, guys. It really means the world to us. Like, I'm being as genuine as I can be. Like, all the all the fun stuff, all the joking stuff aside, it means the world to us. Not just that people listen, but that people actually, you know, they, they dig into their pocket yeah. for it. It's a, it's a different level. Like, there are three types of people in the world. There are the people who don't listen to a podcast, and you know what I think about all of them. I don't have to go into it. There's the people who listen, who I love, and then there's the people who listen and actually say, you know what, this is worth some of my cash. And you guys, you guys rock. So absolutely love you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. You are all wonderful. You said there's a book? What, 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 oh. what is, what's happening here? Yeah, so this, this week's episode, we are reviewing a crime novel called Sinner Man by the author Lawrence Block. And uh, this is going to be a little interesting because we try to review timely books and you know books that are recently released and while this was released recently it actually was originally written in i think 1968 or published in 1968 so this is another oldie yeah it um it came to us actually rap and i were talking um after a podcast a couple of weeks ago and he's like oh, i bought this humble bundle they've got this humble bundle for hard case crime books and I was like, ah, oh. and then when we were struggling to find, like, we have books, but the timing is off, right? So we already know what our next book is, but there was, like, just a little bit of a gap. And he's like, hey, how about one of these? So we selected Sinner Man by Lawrence Block. Now, Lawrence Block is uh, a very well-known author in the crime community. The thing is, when he wrote this, he not only wasn't a well-known author, he wasn't in the crime community at all. So we'll talk a little bit more about, like, the history of this book after the review, but here's the bio for Lawrence Block. He is one of the most acclaimed and highly decorated living mystery writers, having received multiple Edgar Seamus Awards and Maltese Falcon Awards, as well as Lifetime Achievement Awards in the U.S., U.K., and France, including being named a Grandmaster by the Mystery Writers of America, the organization's highest honor. Also, great bio. I was about to say, he's going to get the Booked uh, Award for succinct and awesome bio. I uh, just made that up right now. We could work on the title for that. Here's a synopsis for Sinner Man, Lawrence Block's first crime novel lost for nearly 50 years. To escape punishment for a murder he didn't mean to commit, insurance man Don Barster has to take on a new identity, Nathaniel Crowley, ferocious up-and-comer in the New York mob. But can he find safety in the skin of another man? A worse man? A Sinner Man? It's good synopsis. All right. Too. Well, all right. I was just going to say, <laughs> for what we got in the bio, we lost in the synopsis. That's some cheesy <laughs> shit at the end there. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so this book, as Rob mentioned, was written in the, in the late 60s. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess what it comes down to is contrasting a book that was written then. And then there's a slew of books that I'm sure that were written in this style over the last few years. As a matter of fact, that 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 bundle that you bought, mm -hmm. we were looking at it. We saw books that looked completely indistinguishable from this, like the cover art and stuff. But like one was um, Krista Faust, yep. which I think was written like two year or two or three years ago. So, yeah, um, this is the the genuine deal. Um, we open to Don Barster, as uh, as Rob said who's an insurance man, and he's married, and he's been married for a little while, but life is a little uh, humdrum for him. Uh, doesn't get along real well with his wife, doesn't like her, drinks a lot, and during an argument one night, um, he accidentally kills her. So he does it by slapping her, um, which seems fairly normal in this book. 
shrugging my shoulders. <laughs> I felt like I felt like when this was written, maybe that wasn't such a big deal. Um, but she falls and hits her head and dies. And what does good old insurance agent Don uh, do? He weighs his options. His option is to face manslaughter charges or just say, fuck it. I'm going to take everything I've got, uh, you know, whatever money I, I have and whatever I can carry. And I am going to make myself a new life somewhere else as someone else. So I, I, I'm sure you you wanted to do this too. I want to just read the very first sentence of the book because you want to talk about just putting you right in it. Like mm -hmm. it, this thing starts off at like a gallop. Oh, for Christ's sakes. I say you can't, <laughs> you can get up now, no matter how long you lie there. Nobody's going to give you a fucking Academy award for it. <laughs> That's yep. what he's saying to his wife who is laying bleeding on the floor. And then soon after he realizes that she had died. Yeah. Um, it's, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't even really feel bad about it. Um, but I mean, it's like pretty well established that they didn't have a great relationship. Um, and, and, you know, she was, uh, I don't know, man, she was a naggy house. So here, here's, here's what I get from this, <laughs> this to me. And I think 68 is a little too late now. The book doesn't necessarily take place in 68. Right. You know, that's when it was written, but I really felt like this was the ugly side of like, leave it to beaver. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. like every man is wearing a hat. It, it felt like earlier than that. And I know there are, I'm not saying like the twenties, but you know what I mean? It, it like felt that, like late sixties yeah. was a little too late of a time frame for this, the way I was looking at it. So I was thinking maybe like fifties, like everyone's wearing a right. suit, like late fifties, you know, maybe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, you could, you could timestamp it off of something, a poem that's mentioned, um, which I don't remember the exact publication date for, sure. but it was, but, um, yeah, it really has that kind of taste of like maybe the, the white picket fence and two cars and, and, uh, you know, and uh, that kind of thing isn't as satisfying as it sounds on, on, or it looks on paper. So yeah, this dude, um, like Livia said, He's faced with, you know, what are his options? And he decides, I'm packing a bag. I'm going to clean out my bank accounts and I'm just going to go become a brand new person. And so that's what he does. He, he um, hops on, uh, you know, a train or whatever and just leaves town knowing that he's got at least a few days of like lead time before anybody has a reason to discover that his wife, who he's stuffed in the closet, is no longer living. And, uh, kind of weighs his options and books it for Buffalo, New York, the place that I would absolutely go if I murdered someone that was trying to start my life over again, where <laughs> on, on the, I, and it, it kind of seems like on the train ride is when he decides what he's going to build as his new identity. And he uh, does kind of like a, like a analysis of a situation and decides like he has to be as off the grid as possible and organize crime is the kind of job that you can get into uh, that doesn't really look at, you know, do background checks and stuff like that. Um, to give just a little bit of a background, um, I, he doesn't like, he's pretty clever about things, but he's not, not a criminal. I mean, his, his background is he was in the military, so he's got a little bit of a, you know, fighting skill, maybe some, some small arms training, you know, that kind of thing. But he, he, it was really interesting to see the, the way the block, took Don and turned him into um, Crowley, Nate Crowley or Nat Crowley. Sorry. Um, like how he was going to have to change, you know, basically like his posture, mm -hmm. like how he approaches things, his walk and everything else. It wasn't just like, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw some dye in my hair, you know, and, and, and that's it. Like he was really thinking like, how did Don do things and how, how is Nat going to do them differently and acts on them? And uh, I don't know how likely you are to get noticed by the mob, but essentially he gets into town, you know, finds himself, finds himself a hotel, buys a, a couple of new suits and uh, starts looking for bars that might be mob hangouts. Waits till he finds one and then picks a fight <laughs> with a guy just so he can beat the guy's ass. So people at the bar would be like, oh, that mysterious guy that's been coming in here. Whoop the shit out of some guy. It doesn't take long for exactly that to happen from people uh, from the uh, organized crime families in Buffalo to take notice of him. 
what I what I really enjoy about the way that went down is that he specifically decided to mix it up with a Canadian, and I think it's the guy was just happened to be there, but um, because he's in Buffalo, New York, like Niagara Falls, and Canada's right on the other side, he had like he wrote the story in a way where like he picks a fight with the most inconsequential person because it's someone who's obviously not from town. And so like that first fight kind of starts to build his, his bona fides as a tough guy without like necessarily causing him any future like problems down the road. So I thought that was cleverly written. That was a nice introduction to this new guy. Um, I don't know if it was intentionally clever on the part of the character or just like happenstance, but I thought it was, it was a very tight and clean way to give this guy credentials without complicating his life in the future. The other thing I, I kind of got out of it because someone mentions it back to him later. Like, yeah, like I knew about you from when you beat up that Canuck, you know, like yeah. maybe in Buffalo at that time, like people just kind of <laughs> look down there. No, but you know what I mean? Like Beating Canadians was like a sport. <laughs> well, like, like everyone knew the guy who guys ass beat was Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't, I don't think you could just tell a Canadian by looking at him. You know what I mean? Well, so, like, got out that he beat up a Canadian, not just some guy, a tourist in a bar. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, And so, from there, uh, it's not a really long book, I want to I wanna point out. I think page-wise, uh, I don't have an exact page number, but I feel like it was, like, between, like, 150 and 200 pages, probably a little closer to 200, so it's not a long book. Um, so there's not a ton of story that we can go into, but from there he starts to get noticed and he starts to have interactions with some of the, you know, connected people or like the criminal element. Um, and he, uh, like the book basically is him becoming established as, as like a, a Buffalo, New York kind of wise guy. Yeah. And it's done in such a way. Like it's it's a super easy to read book, but it's interesting enough. But then there's this this bit of writing that that he does that that I find really impressive. This kind of I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. Like it's really plain, really simple. But the way that you could see a character is no nonsense. It's all written in the in first person, right? Right. So um, here's here's a quote that I think will probably explain this a little bit better than. Than I'm doing. Uh, so he basically is at a liquor store. He, he walks into his hotel and he's got a, a bottle of, of booze. And he says, I used a glass and when it was empty, I filled it up again. And when it was full, I sipped at it until it needed filling. Yep. Like that's just really great stuff there. And there's probably at least a dozen instances in the book where it's just kind of this really no nonsense. He hasn't said anything deep. As a matter of fact, he said something that probably didn't need that many words, but the way he said it just gave it such a no-nonsense feel that it's something I really enjoyed about this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the writing is... is <sighs> My mind keeps going to the word crisp. Like, it's just really... It's snappy and, and tight and, and easy in, like, the way that we would talk about hard-boiled, like, crime, right? Just, mm-hmm. like, no wasted word. Um. So yeah, it keep, it really keeps you keeps you reading. I don't know how much you want to go into like we have there's there's a handful of characters um that we could probably talk about a little bit. Um Don Barster becomes Nat Crowley, so that's kind of the main guy. Uh his wife Ellen really doesn't make it past the first couple of pages in this <laughs> book. <laughs> she's just she's just one smack into this book. Yeah. She <laughs> really, yeah. Within four paragraphs she's referred to in the past tense. Uh Brenda is kind of one of the first people that gets named in uh Buffalo once he starts to establish himself, which is a African American maid who he uh he <laughs> we discover early on. Uh, Nat Crowley's got a thing for for women in uniform, and so when the maid's cleaning up his apartment or his his hotel room, I guess um, he offers her fifty bucks. What does he say? There's a fifty dollar bill in my wallet if you're if you're interested in in, in earning it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Classy that guy. I love she, it. She was interested, and so she becomes kind of a. I don't even know what you want to call her because she wasn't like a prostitute, but she was willing to have sex with him for money from time to time. 
So I don't know. I mean, um, I call that a prostitute. I'm not sure. <laughs> I well, think that's, right, right. Yeah. Well, she wasn't a working girl. But then it's weird because eventually when he switches to a different hotel, she quits the hotel she's working at to go work at the other one that he's work, that he's living at now so that she can continue to have him pay her for sex. So, Dude, at 50 bucks a pop back in like the 60s? It's not bad. It's good money. That was probably what she earned cleaning rooms for a week. Right. Because there's there's a part in there where, where Nat is offered a job and the job pays two hundred a week and he's like stoked. Right. So I'm thinking she's earning you know once a week she's doubling her pay, which is not bad. So uh, yeah, you'd sleep with that guy for double your pay. <laughs> uh, it would be the I mean, Ta- double ter- your pay tax free. <laughs> Let me clarify: tax free, double your pay. Would it would it be a dude though? Can we just switch up the genders on this? Like no, because you do that shit for free. Damn it, that's true. All right, yeah. Let's no. get, let's not go down that road. Uh, and then there's uh, then there's kind of like the the more mobby kind of organized crime people. The first person we meet is a guy named Tony Quince, who is just kind of this guy who uh, makes small talk with uh, Nat in a bar about I think was it uh, sports or or something. Yeah. He's the guy you know, like, knows shit, though. From the first time you meet him. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know that he's a mover. Like, right. he's that guy who ha- makes shit happen behind the scenes. But then he's always like, uh, you know, I'm just saying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't ever, you know, he doesn't give that impression that, that he's involved. But he's very involved in the things that are going on. Yeah. It's made obvious. Like, I think, oh, it was like a boxing match or something. That's what it was. It was a boxing match. And mm-hmm. he... He kind of made it sound like he knew who was taking a fall when and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, he was the guy that you wanted to be near because he had the inside scoop on stuff. Yep. And Bishop is uh, the uh, uh, not to be confused with Brenda, the maid, um, is really what what looks to be the love interest for for Nat, and she's a girl who's been around. Um, I think Rob put in the notes here a scene girl, which I think is a perfect description of her. Um, but she kind of hangs around all the mob places and she kind of knows Tony and she knows a lot of people and she knows what places are open till four in the morning, that kind of thing. So that's the the gal that catches uh, Nat's eye. And we have Lou Barron, who is the mob boss in Buffalo. Enough said there. He's just Enough, your very so, yeah. straight up standard mob, mob boss. Like that's he's a caricature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So but was he at the time? See, that's the interesting thing. He's a caricature now. But I don't know how many books at that point or movies or TV shows or whatever kind of had that character. That's a good point. Um, So I mentioned a poem earlier, uh, just to kind of like kind of carbon date uh, when this book maybe takes place. Um, uh, Anne, the scene girl, uh, is in her, I think, first conversation with our boy Nat, um, says uh, something that's a quote from, I don't know if you caught it, in the, in the time, but later in the book, they mentioned the name, the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg, mm-hmm. um, which at the time, if you're, if you're, so that was published in like 1954, 55. Um, so the earliest, the late, the earliest this could be is around that time, like mid fifties. I'm feeling like it probably was more late fifties, early sixties, but that was definitely like a lot of hippie talk kind of shit. So like, um, a guy who's trying to establish himself as like a hard, hard type mob guy hanging out with a girl who's quoting like hippie poems. Like, mm-hmm. I think that was definitely establishing that she, while she was in the scene, she wasn't of the scene, if that kind of makes sense. Sure. So. Yeah, she had a deeper. She was a deeper character than she led on to, which quite quite honestly, some of the best stuff in this book is the dialogue between the two of them, because I don't think sure. either one of them are really what they appear to be. So they, there's a little there's good banter between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Rob's right. There's not a lot else to talk about in the story and in your typical kind of mob. So we're in a typical mob story, but really from like an outsider's perspective, even though Nat is kind of gets involved with this, we, we get to see it from you know, through his eyes. So there's your kind of standard mob double cross. There's some hits, there's involvement with the police, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, there's nothing super special here, but it doesn't mean the book wasn't really <laughs> good. Like I really enjoyed this book. 
I was telling Rob that I want to read some some kind of older stuff and, you know, whatever. And, you know, he had the suggestion about um, looking at some of these older crime noir books and picking one. And I, Rob, spot on, man. Excellent choice. This was this was exactly what I needed right then. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, so, you know, when we when we review books and stuff, it's often a conversation about like you know, the arc of a character and, and, you know, how did they change from the beginning to the end and all that kind of stuff. And really this is much more of a slice of life. I mean, it's got, you know, it's got plot and it's got character development and stuff. And as much as this guy goes from an insurance guy who accidentally kills his wife to a guy who's working in for the mob. So like, obviously his life takes some drastic, drastic changes, but, um, I think it's almost, this is me kind of zooming out and just kind of considering the plot a little bit because it's not a book that's supposed to be picked apart and analyzed. But I think the question that it asks you more than anything is, did this guy ever really change at all? If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I yes, it did completely make sense. Um, I, like. I know this is a crime book, but I th- like you said, it, there's there's a slice of life might be one way to put it. Yeah, there's definitely something else under the surface. It's just not a standard crime book, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the one thing I do want to talk about, and this is um, partially because I said something on the last episode and man, it didn't take long for me to be proven wrong. I said people really shouldn't write sex scenes. I said oh, that after reading yeah. L. James, but I, I was thinking back to other books we've read and, and very little praise for, for sex scenes in books. Now, along comes Lawrence Block in the 1960s. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I know some of this might come up later, but and I mentioned he was writing erotic fiction. He said he was the only writer, the only guy writing about lesbians in America at that time. Right. <laughs> That's in the, the, the kind of yeah. afterward from yeah. him. Right. So he's writing, he's cranking out these erotic novels uh, for, you know, I'm guessing considerably less than, than he wound up making for, for latter books. But, man, there's some sex in here. And you know what? It's it's not pretty. It's not, you know, whatever. Some of it is not even necessarily, I don't even know if it's consensual. But, man, he wrote this shit good. He did. And I just got done saying people just shouldn't do it. And then I read this and I was like, well, Lawrence Block should fucking do it because Lawrence Block does a really good job at it. And he does it in the middle of a fucking crime novel, no less. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, And I know that has to do with the fact that that's what his other work was. And there was probably some, you know, there's probably some call for that kind of thing in these types of books anyway. Like we were talking about how a lot of these books have the half naked woman on the cover, you know, so there's always kind of that promise of some sex in there with the crime. But I really think this dude delivered and he did a great job with it. He did. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like if you want to kind of tick the boxes of what's a crime novel, like what would you think a crime novel would have in it? I think he, he ticked all the boxes. Like it's got your violence. It's got your, um, like sexy femme fatale kind of thing. You know, it's got all like the things, um, but it doesn't feel cliched. And then obviously, like, I think we were talking about this a little bit too, is like, you know, this is, this is a crime book that was written 50 years ago. (laughs) So like, yeah. uh, What did he start, you know, versus what we know now, what was he the first to do? Like, it's just, it's, it's great. It was very entertaining. Yep. Um, by the way, I, I pulled up his Wikipedia page. So he is currently 80 years old. Um, and he has written under at least, including his own, from what I can count here, 11 different names. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It is crazy. But uh, <laughs> I mean, well, we'll get a little more into the, the whole publishing thing from from back then shortly. But I, I guess we should probably wrap this up. Is there anything from the book you want to talk about? Do you have any quotes or anything you want to? Um, yeah, I do have a couple. Let me... Uh... Let me get to the right spot here. While you're looking at your quotes, I do want to throw this. I had to Google this word superannuated. Yeah. Which means obsolete through age or new technological or intellectual developments. And the reason I had to look it up is I, in any other sentence, I probably would have just, just glassed right over it and moved on. But he, this woman comes out of an apartment. They're on their way to do, you know, some mob stuff, we'll say. 
And one of the neighbors like kind of comes out of her apartment and he says, she looked like a superannuated whore. And I, I was like, well, I've got to know what kind of whore this is. And when I looked it up and read it obsolete through age or new technological or intellectual developments, I was like, Lawrence Block is a motherfucking genius. <laughs> That's no amazing. Word. Yeah. Mastery of the English language. She looked like a superannuated whore. Perfect. Um. All right, so I, I just want to talk about like how times have changed, um, and one of the most obvious examples of shit that would never, ever fucking happen today that happened in this book is a little air, like a flight that happened between uh, Buffalo and Phil- Philadelphia. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, Livius? Yep, yep. So. Uh, <sighs> This isn't really spoiling anything in the book, but at one point he sent from Buffalo to Philly. I'm talking about uh, Nat, the main character, sent uh, from Buffalo to Philly to uh, whack a guy. And so uh, mob boss Lou Barron gives him a gun, says, you got a flight and sends him, you know, sends him to the airport like he has someone driving to the airport. He just gets on this plane with a fucking gun in his pocket and if that's not <laughs> like that in itself would never happen, except for like the random you read an article where it's like TSA missed a guy with a gun. But like this guy, you know, I'm sure that they just kind of looked at him and thought, well, he doesn't look like he's got a gun in his pocket and just like watched him walk past because that was probably what airport security was like back in the day. And and uh, at one point he he gets up and goes into the air, the airplane bathroom like a mid flight and uh <laughs> He's talking about the gun. I'm not going to set it up too much, but uh, let's see. I went to the John to get rid of some coffee, which was his way of saying pee, which I thought was, you know, pretty hard-boiled. I checked the gun there, too. It was a big gun, a heavy gun, a Browning Parabellum with a 13-cartridge magazine. It must have weighed two pounds. I took the magazine out and practiced with the empty gun, sighting at imaginary (laughs) targets and squeezing the trigger. Uh he was on an airplane and he went to the bathroom <laughs> and he was fake shooting an actual gun. On the airplane. That was just madness. I'm reading this and I'm like, Rob, I can't even imagine it like that being a real thing. Rob, that, they were simpler times. My friend, apparently when a man could be a man and take his handgun <laughs> into an airplane bathroom with him. <laughs> Not like this bullshit today. Oh. No fire at the airport. I don't fucking understand. <sighs> All right, I learned something. Um, I'm not even going to get into a paragraph or like a, an actual quote here. But I didn't realize that oral sex used to be referred to as French stuff. Yes, that was a thing too. <laughs> yeah, He's like, act, he told her to act French or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. And then he goes on to say the French stuff was fine for a long preliminary, but for the payoff, I wanted to be strictly in control, strictly in the saddle. It was some saddle. God, this is so good. This is so fucking good. Um, there is another. At some point, he he winds up having someone that works for him. It's, it's a woman and it's like a, a sister of a mobster who gets like that cush job, you know, where she gets paid way too much to do almost nothing. She's yeah. a redhead. And he says, yeah, and he says, God, I don't want to get involved in this. You know, someone's sister. I don't want to get involved in some shitty situation like this. But then he goes on to say, I might try the redhead on sooner or later. The way you try on any stray female who looks like she might be fairly good at it. <laughs> that's like my daily inner monologue. Yeah, exactly. You try on a redhead. Hey, maybe that's why we have women not wanting to listen to the podcast. What we just said right there. Um, what you just said, my friend, I just oh. want people to note. So if you have a complaint, this time it note was that me. Was Rob, not me. That's correct. Yeah. So I guess you want to go into wrap ups or do you have any other quotes you want to talk about? I want to, I want to do one more that feels like maybe nothing has changed in 50 years. <laughs> There's some things that go down with the mob. Long story short, he reads about this stuff in the newspaper and he's now talking about journalists The source book on crime is a mass of printed matter on the topic, all of it written by other newsmen. They make the myth and wind up believing them. So like everything he's reading is completely wrong and he's on the inside. So he knows and he's like there, you know, he goes into in the book. He says, yeah, they say this guy, this guy hasn't been around forever. You know what I mean? Like he knows the situation. 
And he talks about reporters just using other reporters as source material, never getting it right because, you know, they're, you know, the original source material is wrong. But then that becomes fact in, in their lives. And, and I feel like some of that eh, might still go on today. Now, I, all right. I'm going to cut in. I'm going to cut to a future thing that we're going to talk about later in the podcast. But a book I recently read, I posted a quote from it on uh, Facebook, and it's a book that takes place in the early 1900s. And this is the quote. What a mess the world is in, cried the man reading the news in his paper. It seems that in the advanced stages of stupidity, a lack of ideas is compensated for by an excess of ideologies. And I was like, man, this is like someone talking about how it is today, but in a setting much much earlier on so um yeah i'm with you and related to the news the more things change the more they stay the same someone wise probably said that probably hey how about you give us a wrap-up for this book all right so i hadn't read any lawrence block before um but i had a really good idea of of the type of book that we were getting into uh from the imprint and just like the history of 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 lawrence block and stuff actually my only uh experience with him was um, they adapted one of his adopted adapted one of his books into the the movie A Walk Among the Tombstones that Liam Neeson was in, and I thought it was a pretty good story and everything. Um, so that's where I recognize his name from. Um, but I never read anything from him before, so I went in kind of open minded, and um, him being so well known, I figured it was probably going to be a decent read. And from man, that first page where he's telling his dead wife. To just knock it off because she's not going to win any awards. I was like, this is just a winner of a book. Like it was so I was sold from that first sentence. And so, um, just a really good, tight, well-written crime story, um, that doesn't try to dig too deep into, to building like an amazing plot or anything. Um, but again, more of like a slice of life thing, more of like a, just like a picture of a guy who's, you know, kind of going going from one phase to another in his life and a lot of dirty stuff goes down because of it um and it doesn't take itself too seriously and it's not too long it was a snappy quick read and uh just entertaining the whole time and i don't really see anything that really takes away from it at all it was just a really entertaining time and uh one of the the benefits that obviously he didn't you know think about when he was writing the book was it also gives us an opportunity in 2019 to do those kind of comparisons of like what what was what was going on back then versus now and everything so it's just fun to look back at a, at a different time because the book was written in that time it's not a book that was written to be in that time it's actually a book of that time so um that was interesting too to just kind of get a contrast to from then to now so i mean everything about this book i really enjoyed i'm gonna give it four and a half stars for a little bit of clarity, and I came across this, I was trying to find a count of how many books he has written, and Wikipedia doesn't give me an actual number, but it's like 70, maybe more. I mean, just from looking at the yeah, list. Jesus. But I, I did discover this. Um, it was written in 1958, so we were spot on with our feeling about it, but it wasn't written in the late 60s. It was published in 1968. It was written in 1958. Okay. So yeah, yeah we yeah. were we were definitely right with him. Right, he was writing current, but he was writing current in '58. The book wasn't um, initially published until ten years later, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, yeah, I had so much fun with this book. Um, you know, to, to echo Rob, you know, is there anything you know great, brilliant in this book? Am I going to be thinking about this book for weeks? No, no, not at all. But you want to talk about a fun read, a look at a time. One of the things we didn't mention there's a part in here where he tears up his credit cards just think about that for a second he tore up his credit cards not cut them up <laughs> he tore them up so i mean just little things like that 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 it lend an, i mean obviously it's authentic because it's written in that time period but lend an authenticity that i don't know you would pick up in the you know crime noir novel that was written in 2018 um so um, you know, the characters were, uh, for the most part, I wouldn't say it about Nat, but I would say the rest of them are kind of, uh, you know, archetype characters, you know, they're, they're, we, we've seen them before. Um, maybe they weren't quite as seen before in the 1950s when he wrote this. Um, but something about this book was just a lot of fun. It was super easy to read. It was interesting in parts. We got a glimpse of the world 60 years ago. 
and I, I really enjoyed it too. I, I think Rob's right on the money. I, I was going to go four, but I, I think four and a half is a good place to be. So we'll go four and a half stars for this one. Yeah. Um, it, it's fortuitous that we, I stumbled upon that humble bundle. Um, and it was one of those, like you see people post like little like book deals and stuff. Um, I've always kind of liked Humble Bundle because, and I don't know exactly what they do, but I feel like either like don't they give to chair either they give to charity yep. or it's it's a charity organization. Yeah. And so, and and since it's just like a pile of eBooks, it, it felt like it was just an easy thing. So, uh, the Hard Case Crime um, Humble Bundle was, you know, like depending on I don't know if the, for the people who are listening, if you've never done a humble humble bundle thing before. There's different levels and like if you get you can give whatever you want to and get the main thing. But then as you give more, like um it's almost like milestones. When you give this much, you get these extra things, you give this much, you get these extra, but you can give whatever you want to. So there was like the everything milestone was fifteen dollars, and I think it's like easily thirty ebooks or something like that. So uh, a no brainer, it's a good value no matter what. Um and I think I gave twenty just because like, you know. That might, you know, I don't know. Because you it, got that, you got that podcaster money. Be that honest. Podcasting money. That's what it was. I did, I was trying to be humble, but <laughs> yeah, like like the bundle. Um, humble bundles primarily. Um, people know them for video games and software. Yeah. Um, it's how they started. Uh, but yeah, occasionally ebooks. Uh, like I was looking to see if there were any current ones because I was like, man, this is so much fun. Like the current one, is, they're all like, um, like how to books, like coding right. and stuff like that. So um, if you're into video games, primarily computer video games, but I do believe I bought one um, previously that had like some PlayStation titles, like you get the computer version, but some PlayStation titles a few years ago. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. And yeah, the money, I'm not sure exactly how it breaks down, but I do know that they put millions and millions of dollars into charities over the years doing that. So it's a... I commend them, but then you also have to commend the publishers, um, in this case, a book publisher. Rob's going to talk about in a minute. But, you know, the, the video game publishers and developers and stuff who essentially either give it up at a significantly discounted rate or make them available to Humble Bundle for free for X amount of time or whatever. They're all very time limited, time sensitive things. So unfortunately, right. this bundle is no longer available. But I do believe you can buy Cinnerman right on Amazon if you'd like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the hard case crime people, but then. It's just weird. So I, uh, someone posted this on Facebook, and I was like, "Click the link, pay the twenty bucks." It was a no-brainer. I wanted it, um, and I hadn't realized where I recognized Hard Case Crime, the publisher at the time. Um, but in looking at their catalog of books that they've released, Hard Case Crime is the publisher that released the Nice Guys novelization that we reviewed recently, written by Charles R. Dye. And I think we liked that book, right? Like, you know, uh, I we think, did. I think we I, both I really liked, liked that book. Yeah, I think we both kind of fell in favor of the movie over the book, but the book was still a, a pretty, pretty good book and in a nice novelization. Um, what I what I didn't realize was when we read that, I didn't realize Charles R. Dye is the head guy for Hard Case Crime, which is pretty cool in itself. Um, but in, in looking up stuff for the podcast tonight, I stumbled across the fact, and this blows my mind, back in like 1996, Charles R. Dye was one of the founders of the company Juno. Juno Mail, right? They yeah. did mail? Yeah. They did, they did web hosting and email mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and I think they got bought by the same company that uh, owns like NetZero. If you remember net zero, <laughs> I remember all of that. Hey, you know, you can still, you can still go and sign into your Juno email. Apparently. Are you serious? Juno.com. I, I probably uh, had a Juno, yep. uh, you know, email back in the day. So this guy founds in the mid nineties, just before the bubble, I think for, for the dot com, the dot com bubble mm -hmm. bursts. He's, he's a, he's an internet company guy. And then cut to like, 20 years later he is the founder of uh i i think a pretty innovative um crime imprint in as much as they go around acquiring rights to old out of print crime books and then republish them and you know i man and like i said i'm, I'm so happy that you came across this because i probably would have discounted something like this previously 
And I can't accurately explain how I feel about this. I feel like this book was as good as anything <laughs> we've, we've reviewed in the last couple. You know what I mean? Like, yep. it, there was no sacrificing of quality. Um, and this isn't, you know, we also read Alexandre Dumas, right? But we already know, like, the reason we read Alexandre Dumas is because he's fucking Alexandre Dumas. Like, he's a goddamn legend. So yep. you know that when you get something from him, even if it's not really your thing, you know it's got to be high quality or we wouldn't still be talking about it hundreds of years later. Um, every bit is good. And, and, and in a lot of cases, better than some of the stuff we've read. So, yeah, definitely kudos to Hard Case Crime for, for doing this. Um this podcast has been a little bit on everything's got to be new. Everything's got to be new. And, you know, I think that when we do that, maybe we're, we're missing out on some old stuff. I'm sure everyone listening is like, of course you are, you moron. But sometimes it's nice to be reminded that there's good quality shit from 60 years ago that you can pick up and read and that you're going to enjoy it every bit as much as you enjoy something from 2019. Mm-hmm. But and then this goes into the whole like Lawrence Block thing. If this card case crime imprint uh imprint publisher uh had not acquired this book and republish it and everything it would have been us tracking down an old like print copy of the original book that was published in the 60s under a different name i can't remember um uh off the top of my head and being like oh we read this book that literally nobody can find unless you go looking in used bookstores for like years until you run across a copy of it. So like our model makes sense in as much as we try to read stuff that you also have access to. And so it's, it's just great that, um, that hard case crime is doing that. Cause like you, you, I can't even, I don't even want to think about the number of books that have just vanished into oblivion because a publisher goes under, which happens all the time. Mm-hmm. For sure. Speaking of which, there's a very interesting afterword. You know, we said this book was lost for 50 years. I shouldn't say we said it. It was in the synopsis. And I'm, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. Mm-hmm. But man, I learned a lot about publishing. <laughs> so here's the, the long and the short of it. Uh, as much as I can get it right from memory, I didn't take a lot of notes. Um, the Lawrence Block one day someone had asked him about whatever book and he's like, well, I wrote this book. He's like, but I don't know. It got published, but I can't find it anywhere. Like went on his blog, (laughs) wrote about it. Right. So fast forward like two years and someone posts a picture of a book of a friend of his taxes and says, Hey, isn't this, this might be the book you were asking about. It's got, you know, these elements and the elements that he remembered were insurance agent kills his wife and runs off to join the mob. Thought he remembered a character name or two. And that's all he had because he had written it 50 plus years before that. Yeah. Turns out that he sold it for, you know, a thousand to 1500 bucks. It didn't get published for a couple of years, but he was writing under multiple pseudonyms. The one he was using at the time or, or one of the ones he was using at the time was Sheldon Lord. So people were publishing, publishing stuff under Sheldon Lord. But then he was licensing the name Sheldon Lord for like a couple hundred bucks per book because he was getting a little bit of a following for ghosts. So he's ghostwriting under a name Sheldon Lord. And then he's collecting money from other ghostwriters who are writing under his ghost name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fucking thing that this so eventually what wound up happening is that book, uh, you know, he had sold in whatever in the late 50s, early 60s, whatever. It didn't get published right away. It got wound up getting published by a completely different publisher, and they changed the name. So even though he was looking into it and he had seen this book called Savage Lover, it never occurred to him that that was his book Sinner Man that he had sold. He just thought, oh, this is another one of these Sheldon Lord books, which, you know, there were a a ton of apparently because there were plenty of other people writing under that name. Insane. (laughs) It's crazy. And, and, you know, as you said, it would never happen today. Right. Right. Because, you know, it just doesn't work out that like, you know what I mean? Like now you have digital, you have correspondence, you can look in your email, find out who you sold something to. Hell, you could search a passage of text and Google will probably find the book for you. Um, But at the time he was cranking out books. Uh, The Wikipedia said at one point he was writing 10 to 15 erotic book novels a year. Like that was how he earned his living. So if the guy's cranking out 40, 50, 60 books over the course of a few years, it's, it's probably pretty easy for one of them to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. 
uh, just fascinating on all accounts. And it's nice that you like, there was a little history that was added to it. Like the, the, the extra stuff at the end of the book, um, from the author himself, I think really was a cool thing to, to get context for, for what we were reading. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, that if, if the book on its own wasn't enough, I was fascinated by the afterward, just fascinated. Yep. So yeah, I, I'm happy we did this. And, and the nice thing is we have a well to go to now, if we ever get stuck on something, because that humble bundle had like 30 books in it. So Krista Faust or any number of other authors, we might be gunning for you next. You never, ever know. So Rob, can I ask a question? Yeah. Like we didn't talk at all like last week. So what what did you do the week without me around and without a book to read? And Well, it's funny that you say without a book to read because um, I did something that I haven't done in, in a long, long, long time. And that is I read books uh, for myself, not for the podcast. Wait, what? Wait, hold on a second. Plural books. <laughs> That's right, Livius. I read three books while I was on my vacation. Two of them for my own personal leisure, and the third one being uh, this Lawrence Block book. So, My understanding... Hold on, let's back up for a second. My understanding is there weren't like three Saturdays in this time for you to read three books. So I, the math isn't, the math isn't working for me, buddy. I'm not, I'm not sure that, that this is all accurate. Yeah. I paced them out and I read them a little bit at a time too. So I did the Livia's approach. I did That's some Liv's lunches. So tell us, tell us what you read. Obviously center man, <sighs> read center man. You heard everything that I had to say about that. Um, but before those, um, I had gotten to, uh, so I took 12 days off and in that time, uh, we were originally going to go to StokerCon. We did not go to StokerCon, Um, and so I had really nothing on the agenda. And so, um, I decided that I was just going to kind of treat myself and, and focus on relaxation and happiness and stuff like that. And so part of that was getting to some books that I'd been dying to read for a while in the past. I've talked about reading the, the book, uh, Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon and just um, gushing about how great I thought that book was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and subsequently, I have bought three more books from him that I had not had a chance to read. Uh, the Angel's Game, The Prisoner of Heaven, and um, The Labyrinth of Spirits were the three books um, that he's written that all share a universe and a timeline they're not necessarily sequels or prequels or whatever but they all um, take place in the same place around the same time and have a singular focus of um, a place called the cemetery of forgotten books i think is what it's called and it's this like kind of secret place where um, books go to kind of um, almost be buried that's why it's called the cemetery like they'll they'll always be there and they'll have a place and, and blah blah blah. Uh so Shadow of the Wind was the book that I'd already read. I picked up um The Angel's Game, which is the second book that he wrote in this kind of shared universe. Uh which is kind of a prequel. It takes place before Shadow of the Wind. I fucking loved it. Five hundred and like fifty pages. It was just amazing. Um and then The Prisoner of Heaven is is the third book he wrote in this kind of series of books takes place immediately after shadow of the wind so um having having read shadow of the wind i think right before we started this podcast eight years ago a lot of that stuff was a little bit like you know the memory wasn't so good with that but man just diving back into this guy's world it's such a fascinating place it takes place in barcelona between like the early 1900s and like the 1950s or 60s and it's just, I don't know, man, the way he writes is so great. So, um, there's one more book he wrote in this world, Labyrinth of Spirits, which I have not read yet. And it's 800 pages. <laughs> so I don't know when I'm going to have to take another vacation to knock that one down, but I absolutely love these books. And, um, without any question, I would recommend anybody who, wants to you should check them out and especially if you like kind of like not mythologizing but kind of the the series of books kind of elevates the the idea of books and reading to a higher level 
Like, it's not just that books are an escape or they're fun or something like that. They have a significance to culture and history and stuff like that. So they're very revered. And and so it's got that. Plus, it's also a very historical fiction kind of look at a specific place and time. And it's all just done magnificently. I know that I have added Shadow of the Wind to my um, off-podcast reading list. I'm just fascinated that you read a 500-page book, let alone two of them. Because if I say a 500-page book for the podcast, you're like, fucking find something else. <laughs> like, uh, moaning Find about something else. Yes. Well, all right. So The Prisoner of Heaven, the second book that I read, uh, was about just under 300. So okay. together, they totaled about 800 pages. Gotcha. But that's, yeah. uh, that's very cool. I know you've mentioned that book to me before, and as I had mentioned on the podcast, and I hope that I was inspirational to you and wanting to read more outside the podcast. I really do. Um, I'm, well, gonna, yeah. I'm adding that to my <laughs> list for sure. It, it's on my list. Um, probably the the next book I read that's not a that's not a, a booked book. There, there's two reasons that I decided to read non podcast books while I was on vacation. Um, one is exactly what you said. I was inspired by you, kind of reading for self-fulfillment and, and that kind of thing. The other was, there's no goddamn way I'm going to let you read a 500-plus page book and I don't at least do the same amount of work. I was sure you were, I, I was positive you were going to be like, <laughs> man, I managed to watch all of Justified again. Like, that was going to be your... I only got through well, season you... one. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of books, I do want to mention one other book-related thing before we move on. Um you mentioned the Stoker Awards. Yep. Um, Paul Tremblay, superior achievement in a novel. Nice job, Paul. Um, Paul's been a friend of this podcast for, I don't know, six years or so now. And uh, so nice um, not just to see him, you know, see his books when I walk into a bookstore, which is super cool, but to see him really get some credit for for some of his work. So tremendous job. Um, congratulations to all the winners. But you know what I'm going to say next, right? I know. I, you've been I know. Thinking this I know. Tonight. Yeah. I think that we have to for the podcast. Now we already got, I've already started our next book, BTW. Um, but you know what my favorite book of last year was, right? It's baby teeth by Zoya stage. Right. And it did not win superior achievement in a first novel, which makes me super curious about a book called the rust maidens. Yep. Cause if it beat what I, I feel is the best book I read last year out of, I don't know. I mean, what we read for the podcast, probably like 35 30, yeah. and probably another 10 on my own out of the 40 something books I read last year, then, uh, there must be something to this book. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it out. There's a feeler for you. Next time we have a gap, maybe the rust maidens should, uh, should fill that for us. Yeah, that makes sense. Now we, now the stokers though, we really kind of missed a chance cause we went out of our way to read all of the, the novel uh, category books, and then we didn't cast our votes before. <laughs> Fucking goddamn it! Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, so frustrating. This is a little self-flagellation because we put in the hours, yeah. and then we just totally timed it weird, where we didn't talk about it before the Stoker Awards were announced. <laughs> and so, like anything we say, it might not sound genuine now. But mm-hmm. I was going to choose the fucking Paul Tribbly book. <laughs> I, I know you were. <laughs> I know you were. Um, I was very torn. And at this point, because there's a winner, I'm not going to say it, but I was, I, I don't know how I would have made a decision between Unburied Carol and, and the cabin at the end of the world. They were so different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's the thing. And then Mayberry's book really delivered in some ways where I, I can't say that Mayberry's book was better than those. Um, but I, I will say, having read all five, I can definitely give you Here's what I'm going to do without with do, doing that thing. You remember we used to ask authors, like, tell oh, us yeah. one, and then they give you, I'm going to give you fourth place um, would definitely be Dracul, the, the Doc Ray Stoker book. Third place, Alma Katsu, The Hunger. Second place, Jonathan Mayberry with Glimpse, and then a tie for me. I, I don't know how to make a decision between Josh Mallerman's Unburied Carol and Paul Tremblay's Cabin at the End of the World. Because I really thought about it, and I was like, we missed our opportunity. I thought the same thing. Like, well, now it's over. What the fuck does it matter what we say? <laughs> like, like, the whole idea was to do it ahead of the Stokers, and yeah, yeah we missed our opportunity. Yeah, I'm not too broken up about it. Um, but happy to see 
um, people that we care about, you know, nominated, acknowledged that, you know, their work is worthy of the award, um, whether they actually won the award or not, um, you know, they're, they are the best. They're amongst the best. And that's a big thing. I also, on a non-book related Stoker topic, I just want to mention, cause I provided Rob with some, uh, some evidence, uh, <laughs> Back when The Haunting of Hill House came out, um, both Rob and I watched it. And we watched it right around the same time. Because I remember I was kind of messaging, talking about stuff. Yeah. And after I watched episode five, The Bent Neck Lady, I sent Rob a message. And I went back and found it. And it said, this might be the best writing on a television show I have ever seen. Yeah. And sure enough, superior achievement in a screenplay. So Bent Neck Lady. I felt, I, I felt very vindicated in saying that because I say something like that and people think like, yeah, whatever. And next week you'll say it's something else. But no, like when I really do that, I'm like, man, I've like racked my brain. Like, is this really? And I just remember being shaken, maybe it's probably a good word after watching that episode and thinking like, I don't remember the last time a TV episode of TV show grabbed me like that. Now, the whole The Haunting of Hill House, I think, was was some of the best writing in television. It's not one of my favorite TV series ever. It's probably not in the top ten, if I'm being honest. I still think it was really, really good. But that episode, man, oof, shudder. Here, not so good. To, not, I, I fully agree with you, not to take away from that. But I think that the thing that people don't think about, because the Bird Box movie screenplay was also uh, amongst the nominees, um... The reason that I, I was thinking that that had a real shot at winning the award was the just kind of the fundamental thought of after you read a book like Bird Box, you have to ask yourself, how in fuck is someone going to turn that into a movie? Yeah, I mean, we had that we had that same question when we knew it was happening. Mm-hmm. I think we had that exact discussion. Like, this is going to be challenging. So and for sure, I agree yeah. with you that it was a great it was a great you know it, a screenplay whatever it was a great movie yeah so I, I, that's why i thought that it had maybe an edge over bent neck lady but like i i feel like the bent neck lady episode has a, a stronger impact um in like in a in a purely horror sense i guess would have been, what would have been an interesting thing is you know i didn't like the movie annihilation right but it was also nominated right <laughs> to see like i don't know how these awards work but like that split vote like half the people go bird box yeah. half the people go bent neck lady and somehow annihilation gets ahead of both of them because <laughs> i don't know if i would have uh if i would have been able to, to take that i mean not that i care a lot about screenplay awards like right. i don't you know what i mean but it was just very nice to see that episode get the recognition i i truly feel it deserves i i, I do an episode solo and i'm like guys livius is inconsolable about the results of this uh screenplay award <laughs> my god um, yeah can't can't do the podcast to have to go it alone so yeah yeah all right, now we talked about my vacation, Livius, but um, I, I think it's important to point out that uh, you're, you're going on a vacation soon, too, and there's some implications about that for the podcast. Yeah, there will probably be more interesting for me to talk about my vacation upon my return, which I'm sure I'll do. But, yeah, I will be spending um, a week in Paris um, again. Not that I spent a week there last time. It was only um, three or four days. But uh, that does mean that no episode next week. Like we couldn't drum up enough enthusiasm to do like an interlude to drop on you guys. So you will get a break. Rob gets like two breaks this month, which must be amazing (laughs) for him. Um, But uh, yeah, so no episode next week. The following, I'm really excited about this because this is another thing we haven't had the opportunity to do on the podcast. Thomas Harris, who is the creator of Hannibal and wrote five Hannibal books. I think it's five Hannibal books. Um, which I read all of, um, has his first new book out in forever, like 10 years or something like that. So since Hannibal Rising, um, which was uh, quite a while ago. So I'm very excited to read that. I'm excited for Rob to read some Thomas Harris, because although he hasn't, huge fan of, of Hannibal, as people might already know, the TV show. So it'll be interesting to see what some non-Hannibal Thomas Harris looks like. Yeah, the book is called Carrie Mora, and um, I actually threw down the synopsis just because 
you know, some people might not know what's going on or might not know him outside of Hannibal. So this is what we're looking at. $25 million in cartel gold lies hidden beneath a mansion on the Miami Beach waterfront. Ruthless men have tracked it for years. Leading the pack is Hans Peter Schneider. Driven by unspeakable appetites, he makes a living fleshing out the violent fantasies of other richer men. Carrie Mora, caretaker of the house, has escaped from the violence in her native country. She stays in Miami on a wobbly, temporary protected status, subject to the iron whim of ICE. That's the immigration and whatever people. ICE, those evil government people. Uh, She works at many jobs to survive. Beautiful, marked by war. Carrie catches the eye of Hans Peter as he closes in on the treasure. But Carrie Mora has surprising skills and her will to survive has been tested before i uh 10 in 10 in on this book came out today um i uh he is driven by unspeakable appetites i will say that <laughs> immigrations and customs enforcement i think is what i see yes yes right. i knew i'd get yeah, there yeah so uh excited to check that out and hey since i've got a week off Maybe I'll check out some of that other Thomas Harris. No promises. That would be very cool. I think it would be very good for you. Now, I read, god damn, I read Red Dragon probably when Silence of the Lambs came out. So was that 90? Yeah. <laughs> so wow, it's yeah. been a long, long time. Um, but yeah, I, I've read all the Hannibal books over, you know, as they came out. I mean, I had to catch up, at, you know, in the beginning. But yeah, I've read them as they came out. And, and uh, I found them to be very enjoyable. Um, we'll see. We'll see what this guy. I'm pretty sure you and I talked about this, right? I think the only things he's ever read were the the Hannibal books, mm-hmm. which would be kind of interesting, right? Because that means that it's a. Well, his first novel was something about a terrorist thing at like a football game or something like that that had nothing to do with uh, okay the Hannibal series. So he's at oh Black Sunday. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, it'll uh, it'll be interesting to see what I'm trying to find. When is when did Hannibal Rising come out? Hannibal Rising was in two thousand and nine. Hannibal Rising came out in two thousand nine, so I believe that's the last book we saw from him. Yeah, I mean he's got to just be sitting on a pile of like Hannibal royalty money, or like you know licensing money. I yeah, I would think. And, and God bless him, man, because I, I, we've talked about it before. If I have that kind of money, I'm not doing shit else. Got enough money to not have to work. <laughs> I'm not doing any work. That's exactly it's real, yeah. It's, it's real simple for me. yep looking forward to that looking forward to livius leaving the country for a little bit um okay (laughs) just kidding all right that's cool (laughs) but yeah um but yeah so we'll be back in two weeks with some thomas harris until then i'm livius nudden and i'm rob olson keep reading